questions for Keith? Comments? I, I have one, just to pick up on Keith, a terrific paper, thank you. Um, the, uh, you threw out at the end, uh, your conclusion was that the principal thing we would lose would be a liberal world system, and I think I agree with you. But you threw out a minute or two before that uh, the, the intriguing uh, point that the Chinese had recently um, uh, adopted um, a position of the uh, open free trade that, that you felt the Americans should have, I'm sorry, that you felt America should have adopted in, in really for the last 60 years. Um, does that qualify your pessimistic conclusion in any way? Um, uh, I don't think so. Um, like if you actually read Chinese political theory and political history, the Chinese have never, in, in um, you know, what, three, four thousand years of, of their civilizations, developed the concept of freedom. Uh, they borrowed free trade from, um, from Western, you know, Adam Smith and, and the British economic tradition, but they don't have it uh, as part of their own intellectual um, uh, concepts, and um, I don't think it's in their hearts. Um, and, it, 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 and, and, with a, with a, and the fact that the Chinese system must retain, if, if China is not to collapse again, it must retain a central authority, um, and, and it looks like being the Communist Party, which is going to mutate into a kind of um, a, a capitalist economic policy Communist Party, but nonetheless, um, it's, it, will, um, it, it will still retain a, a central authoritarianism. And... Um, I just don't think that um, they can adopt free trade, uh, but I don't think they'll go any further than free trade. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Sorry. Well, every, <laughs> yes. Sorry. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, uh, sorry. yeah, I'd just like to take issue with one part of your paper. I think you're much too optimistic as to how easy it is for governments to cut. You were sort of criticising the Neil Ferguson idea of decline based on increased government expenditure. I think you're much too optimistic about how easy it is for government expenditure to be cut. I mean, in, there, hasn't been, there haven't been any cases of it. You give the example of Margaret Thatcher. All Margaret Thatcher achieved was a, a reduction in the rate of increased government expenditure. There'd be no cases in Western Europe or in the US of, of falling government expenditure. And the other thing is the increase, then you make the point about debts and how debt burdens are still, the <coughs> servicing debt is still much lower than defence expenditure. But that's Partly, that's, that's a factor of historically low interest rates at the moment. If interest rates rise to sort of the level they've generally been, the debt level, the debt burden, the cost of debt will shoot up very quickly. Yeah. Because, I mean, if you've got effective 0% interest or 1% or 2% interest, if, if interest recovered to sort of 7 or 8%, you'd very easily, without any increase in debts, have... The cost of servicing debt will then will be then greater than defence expenditure. Yeah. I just don't think the, these sort of reforms of, gov of government, and cut, they, sort of, these sort of reforms and cutting the size of government aren't easily achieved. Even even when governments are led by people like Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan, who are ideologically opposed to an in increased state, at the moment you don't have world leaders who have that sort of view. You most world leaders embrace big government. So even. So I can't see how this would happen. In Britain, there's endless talk about the radical cuts of the Cameron administration. In fact, those aren't cuts at all. They're just a, they're just a reduction in the increase of government expenditure. So I really don't see why, why suddenly governments are going to embrace government, even if I, I agree that we're <coughs> heading towards disaster, but I don't see that there's any political will or any real chance that, they, that, that there will be cut, uh, those sort of major changes in 
Yeah. Look, look I, I, everything, everything you say, Michael, I think is entirely plausible. Um, the, the one big point I'm making is that um, none of these factors you talk about are integral to the system. Um, they might be common and they might be predominant, but they are all changeable. They are all potentially changeable. Uh, on the question of cutbacks to welfare, I, if you cast your mind back uh, uh, to the 1980s, when right around the world there was a, a, a sort of a, there an intellectual fashion or a set of intellectual policies that pretty well everyone in Western countries adopted, they shifted from universal welfare entitlements to targeted welfare entitlements. And so rather than give um, every, um, I'm not sure about the United States, but probably not, but in, in Australia and several European countries, rather than give um, every mother who has a baby a baby bonus, you only gave it to mothers who were poor uh, or below a certain income level. And that, that uh, there was quite a, quite a ruckus in the early 1980s about, um, about targeted welfare of that kind, but the moral case was, um, was pretty strong. The, uh, at the same time, um, in America, you've always paid for university fees, but in a number of countries, um, the argument for education expenditure should be, education expenditure should be funded by the recipients of it, um, especially university education, became a reality, and a number of countries introduced very steep um, leaps in the fees. And, and again, this was argued on, on moral grounds. In fact, in Australia, it was done by left-wing governments who said, why should the children of the rich be subsidised to become even richer through um, their access to higher education? It became a, a kind of lefty, egalitarian sort of argument. So, uh, I mean, I, I'm, uh, I'm not sort of trying to argue this must happen. I'm just saying that it's plausible. And if you have a crisis in the system, and we are now in, a, in, in days of crisis, then um, the, 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 uh, the, the game changes and uh, people realise what's up, that the whole pattern of social democracy, which in the early 1970s was ripped apart by the late, 1980s, er, late 1970s, early 1980s, uh, by Margaret Thatcher and also with help from um, Friedman and, and Hayek winning Nobel Prizes and having great prestige, intellectual prestige for their arguments. Um, the, the, um, never, never waste a crisis. It's an old political adage. And I think that this crisis... Um, has signs of hope in it, that um, as things get worse and people do, in fact, start talking about... I mean, one of the things about Neil Ferguson, you could say, look, he's really doing the whole world a favour, he's a scaremonger, but there's a kind of underlying reality to the scare that um, we should take he heed of. Now, I don't think yeah, that's, that's um, Ferguson's motives at all. I think he's trying to sell books and, and be a celebrity on TV and get, you know... Uh, 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 on, on the Late Late Show and all that, you know, David Letterman interviews, that sort of stuff. Now, that's the game he's playing. But nonetheless, um, having the fact that this conference is talking about um, uh, this issue uh, is kind of symptomatic of what happens when um, societies come to the realisation that they can't go on anymore. And, if you ha and most de democratic societies have a kind of inbuilt rationalisation to them. Their populations are are um, uh, amenable to res respond well to crises when, when, they, when the crisis is honestly put to them and when they have confidence in their leaders. And so I don't think that uh, the game is over by um, a, a long shot. And I think, um, I mean, you know, yeah. pessimists and conservatives, uh, pessimists and optimists, I, I'm slightly optimistic. I would count on the, <laughs> on the welfare reform angle. I'd sort of counter that by saying... You give the example of Margaret Thatcher and welfare reform. But after Margaret Thatcher, after 10 years of Margaret Thatcher, welfare spending was higher. Mm. There was no effective welfare. There was were, were tinkering around the edges of welfare reform. Mm. But it, didn't, it, wasn't, <coughs> it wasn't achieved. And I don't think... Uh, the, one, the one example where clearly there have been cuts is the university, I mean, university fees. I'd accept that. That's sort of 
peripheral issue. If you look at core government expenditure and core welfare programmes, they've not been tackled. I mean, they've not been reformed. And I can't see, I can't see where there is the will or where there is the desire to do that. Well, I think uh, uh, there may be the will in this country. I mean, Keith alluded to Scott Walker in Wisconsin. That's a, a small beginning, but it is a beginning. Uh, you know, um, uh, and there are initiatives in several other states of a similar nature. <coughs> and I think there are actually historical um, examples of governments uh, cutting their budgets. For example, uh, you have to go back a ways, but Calvin Coolidge balanced the budget. Um, and I think Keith, uh, I, I would argue that the idea that you know uh, crises do bring forward new. Uh, Clinton. Sorry. Sorry. I think Bill Clinton balanced the budget too. No, uh, I, I don't. Did he? Yes. He did. Okay. So we have to have a president with the last name that begins with a C. So, anyway, uh, anyway, uh, a couple more questions. Yeah. Um, can I just point out that one of the ways in the past that empires and indeed large states have often dealt with fiscal crises is by raiding the creditors. I mean, if you take the Spanish Empire, for example, during the 16th century, it declared bankruptcy, which in practice actually meant a compulsory renegotiation of its debt on average every 25 years. Um, modern governments can do this by letting their currency depreciate and of course it's easier of, easiest of all for the United States as the prime creditor to force people to take as it were a, a rate of return on their credit which was lower than they would as otherwise get elsewhere but I wonder if I might just add a general point, there is of course an enormous literature that's gone on for many many years about empires uh, historically about the issue of decline and the key distinction that is usually drawn is between absolute decline and relative decline and I think that's a distinction that's very important if you're looking at the United States today Judge? Uh, oh, oh could you wait for the microphone <clears throat> could you explain just a little more what you mean by a liberal international order particularly under the leadership of the United States. I think I, you used that term. Y yes. Uh, uh, um, uh, uh, the, the, po the point that uh, I was making, the distinction I was making was um, between uh, imperial orders that are set up to establish um, an ideology or a form of plunder. Now, uh, uh, the Soviet Union was a, a, an empire that enforced a particular ideology on uh, its subject people for um, the, its existence. An empire of plunder was the Spanish uh, empire in the Americas, which, um, which went, to, uh, went, went to the Americas for gold and silver and slaves. Um, an empire that... Um, a liberal international economic order uh, is one where, where the, you need to have, uh, to have trade and, um, and to conduct commerce around the globe. You need to have um, a, a rule of law that uh, people can rely upon, which is... Again, that's an issue when people talk about the rise of China. That's an issue that is uh, sorely lacking in China at the moment um, and, and is going to cause some problems for them down the line. But, um, but the, the British Empire has successfully, successfully established rule of law that guaranteed trade and commerce. And, it, and, and if you have free trade where the countries of the world can pursue their own uh, economic comparative advantage, then the economic theory of Adam Smith and Co., which... which 
Now, if, you, if any economic theory is ever going to be regarded as proven true, then that economic theory is. Then everybody who engages in a system of free trade, pursuing comparative advantage under a rule of law, benefits economically. And so um, a, a, an empire of the British, which, which was not conquest of territory. I mean, they were, they were established... In most places, they established treaty ports around the world. They established um, trading posts around the world and coaling stations. In India and, and Australia, they took large amounts of territory. But most of the British... Most, in fact, the, the Dutch Empire was the same. The Dutch did not conquer the hinterland of um, the East Indies. It um, established ports around the ter periphery and traded with the, the populations uh, in, in the centre, uh, which was to the benefit of the populations in the centre. Um, we, we got theories from Marxists how that... Um, uh, economic uh, capitalist um, imperial uh, control was a form of um, economic theft or economic plunder, but um, some of the data I gave you today... And, and in fact, Neil Ferguson's book on empire, I, th I think, is actually a very good summary of the, of the positive benefits of, of liberal international economic, international economic order, which really can be summed up, you know, free trade and rule of law. That's basically what it means. Yeah, John. This on or okay, okay. Uh, just one point: uh, the, the Spanish Empire wasn't totally plunder. I mean, part of it was, of course, the Christianization of, uh, of the world. So there was a, a transcendent component, and to an extent, also when one thinks of the British Empire. I mean, Christianity followed uh, the British flag, uh, Catholicism followed the Spanish flag. So this was something to keep in mind too. It wasn't simply an economic issue, but. Um, certainly the elites of these countries at the time thought they were also doing good by spreading Christianity through the world. Yeah, actually, Deepak Lal actually puts um, the Spanish Empire in terms of uh, getting gold and silver and also um, imposing its own version of Christianity in the same box. That is not what he means by a... Um, that, that's, that's kind of the bad sort of empire. Uh, the good sort of empire is one that just says, look, we want to trade with you, we want to do deals, commercial deals, and if it means we have to um, sail up the Yangtze River and, and uh, with a couple of gunboats and, and um, make the um, local governors agree to this, then we'll do it. But we're not going to do any more than that. Uh, and, and so uh, free trade is quite different to establish, to going in for plunder or ideology, um, if you consider Protestantism and, and Catholicism ideologies, which, which Lau does. Okay. <laughs> Peter? this one point, it seems to me that uh, your, your point's well taken because it provided that sense of confidence and a sense of the righteousness, if you will, of this cause, which is overlaid in addition to obviously the commercial realities that were being put in place. I think without that, boy, when you have not the confidence, not the pretty spiritual sense of the, of the rightness of what they're doing, it makes the entire uh, 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 premise uh, difficult to, um, to see. Um, John? Very quickly, two points. Uh, one is, I think, that the um, ideology of a liberal empire, oh, sorry, was summed up uh, very well uh, by Palmerston when he said trade with the, uh, with the flag were possible. Trade without the flag 
uh, trade with the flag um, where possible, trade, sorry, without the flag where possible, trade with the flag where necessary. And um, secondly, that yes, of course, many of the imperialists were animated in the British side as well as the Spanish by personal Christian values, people like Gordon, for example. But most colonial administrators were not happy about Christian missionaries coming in <laughs> and disturbing what they <coughs> thought, saw as, you know, things are going perfectly happily here until this damn missionary arrived, and then uh, he's stirring the natives up and, and so on. And so the, 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 the British were, in a sense, reluctant to disturb <coughs> subtle customs, and, uh, which I think um, you know, is, separates them from other empires. Well, some customs. I mean, I think Napier uh, got rid of a few customs in India, well, for you're, example. you're thinking of Sati, and you could also, the, the getting rid of the thugs. But that's, that, that just demonstrates that everybody has a point at which they say, this is intolerable. And however liberal you wish to be, you're going to at some point reach that. You're going to reach that point uh, at some point. And, um, and, but uh, for a lot of the time, um, they, they, they would not want to mix with these. And Napier is quite late in the day. Yeah. Can I also make the point, Deepak Lau's point, is that, um, is that uh, empires of free trade, liberal international economic orders, do not, um, want, do not attempt to change the cosmological beliefs of the people they are trading with. They, they leave that alone. And, um, and they also, the rules of the rule of law that you, that, uh, you need for, for um, a liberal international economic order does not need to um, in, in, uh, encroach on traditional laws of inheritance, on traditional laws of marriage, uh, traditional laws about um, the age of consent for sexuality, things that in cases we find um, um, distasteful. And, and in fact, in the case of Sati, if you actually, there's a, if you read some of the history of that, um, there was a movement amongst Hindus which um, which came to a point in which the British then made, made Sati the burning of widows illegal, um, but it did not. It wasn't just imposed from outside. They were they they sort of developed a movement inside to give what their, their own distaste for the um, for the product um, um, some support. And uh, Lau says it's very important that, uh, like a lot of people say, uh, America cannot export its values. Like Samuel Huntington, America cannot and should not attempt to export its values to the rest of the world. And the Deepak Lau version of Pax Americana does not do that in terms of cosmological beliefs. It does it to the extent that trade is good, that um, Im imperial preference and monopolies are bad. Um, it's, it, it keeps to the economic world um, rather than tries to change the hearts and minds of people. It does not necessarily impose democracies on countries like Iraq and Afghanistan. It restricts itself to the rules of law required to trade. Thank you, Keith. I think we should probably, um, I know there are probably more questions, we should probably move on to Charles Murray's paper and then uh, open it up to questions again. <laughs>